Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. These are not our NPR voices. No. This is, we're in the fourth week, <laughs> the fourth, week. fourth week of our theme month. Dictator December. And frankly... It's wearing on us it's a little. It's a little bit of a downer, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> maybe a scotch. Um, you know, maybe we don't do uh, murderous leaders, world leaders. Yeah, we'll be done soon, right? <laughs> yeah. And, well, actually, we just recently discovered that there are five Tuesdays <laughs> in December. And we were like, no, <laughs> we got to do one more. Actually, you have to yep. do one more. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, but it's... We're going to keep trucking because you know what? This is what we have provided for you, our listeners. We promised we would do this. There's a lot of you who are enjoying it, you sickos. And <laughs> no, you know we love Nobody you. Nobody asked for this. Nobody. No, we're still going to do it. Yeah, because we, we uh, stick to our commitments. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We are good people at that. So um, today, whew, I mean, last week wasn't terrible. All things considered. Sure. I mean, I am not going to be the person to be like, Castro had some great ideas. But he built a really great ice cream parlor. He did build a great ice cream parlor. If you haven't listened to it, stop right here. Go back because this episode is not going to make any sense unless you listen to the Castro episode. I'm kidding. This is a separate person. (laughs) But it's a very good episode. Uh, Yeah. This week, I cannot say the same. No. When we were talking about it, you were like, I'll do... Stalin and Castro. And I was like, and I will do uh, Franco and this guy. And it was just because I thought he had a funny name. And wow, was I... Turns out... Turns out... You you bit off a little more than you realized you were going to chew. Exactly. Uh, That's how the phrase goes, right? Yeah. You were throwing all kinds of axioms at me last time that I I never heard of, so... Yeah. And they were just popping into my head. So... Uh, let's just get right down to it. We'll mm-hmm. just power through and then I got a fun quiz. So today, uh, my episode is on uh, Cambodian dictator Pol Pot. I'm the bad guy. Duh. He does have a funny name. He does have a funny name. Uh, and it's an interesting story about how he got it. So uh, Pol Pot was born Salot Sar on May 19, 1925 in Kampong Tom province in Cambodia. Uh, he was the eighth of nine children born to relatively prosperous parents who owned 50 acres of rice paddies. It's a lot of rice. Yeah. Uh, the word Sar, which is what we will be calling him for the n- near future, um, uh, translates roughly to white or pale, which references his comparatively light skin complexion. Okay. His family was of mixed Chinese and ethnic Khmer heritage, although they did not speak Chinese and lived as though they were fully Khmer. Uh, Sar's mother, Sak Nam, was locally respected as a pious Buddhist. Uh, they were raised as Theravada Buddhists and on festivals traveled to the Kampong Tom Monastery. Um, so, uh, just as an FYI, um, Khmer, uh, I f- paused during that because I was like doing my due diligence and like looking up what the Cambodian, like, pronunciation mm-hmm. of Khmer is, which is like Khmer. Yeah. And then I realized no one would know what I was talking about because yeah. of the Khmer Rouge. So Khmer. K-H-M-E-R. Khmer. Um, that is the ethnic uh, people of Cambodia. Okay. So 
Um, he was sent at age five to live with an older brother in Phnom Penh, where he was educated, and he was a mediocre student. Ah. Uh, yes. He failed the entrance examinations for high school and so instead studied carpentry for a year at a technical school in Phnom Penh. Um, access to further education abroad marked Saar out as part of a tiny elite in Cambodia. In 1949, he went to Paris on a scholarship to study radio electronics. So he spent three years in Paris, although he left on several holidays. And in the summer of 1950, he was one of 18 Cambodian students who joined French counterparts in traveling to Yugoslavia, a Marxist-Leninist state, to volunteer in a labor battalion building a motorway in Zagreb. So he returned to Yugoslavia the following year for a camping holiday. So he was like starting to get involved in like communist politics. Uh, In Paris, Saar made little or no attempt to assimilate into French culture, never becoming completely at ease with the French language. Um, He nevertheless became familiar with much French literature, one of his favorite authors being Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And his most significant friendships in the country were with uh, Yang Seri, who had joined him there, uh, Tiun Mum, and Kang Vansak. And these men all become kind of part of his inner circle um, once he starts his political party. So at the time, he was a member of Vansak's discussion circle, whose ideologically diverse membership discussed means to achieve Cambodian independence from French rule. So... Um, I'll talk a little bit about what was going on in Southeast Asia during this time, but let's talk a little bit more about SAR, a.k.a. Pol Pot. In Paris, Yang Seri and two others established the Circle Marxiste, or the Marxist Circle, ah. in a Marxist-Leninist organization arranged a clandestine cell system. So the cells met to read Marxist texts and hold self-criticism sessions, which sounds like... A self-criticism session? Which sounds like a great time. So they read... <laughs> communist literature and then they'd be like i'm bad at my job i'm not i'm not not good at that part (laughs) yeah so just a lot of self-flagellation um several months after the circle marxist formation sar and sari joined the french communist party known as the cfp sar attended party meetings including those of the its cambodian group and read its magazine called the international papers um it is not called that uh it's called that in english um, the French uh, words that translate to the international papers, I could not pronounce. Um, so it's the international papers. <laughs> the Marxist-Leninist movement was then in a strong position globally since the Com- Communist Party of China had recently come to power under Mao Zedong. Mm-hmm. And the French Communist Party was one of the country's largest political parties at the time, attracting the votes of around 25% of the French electorate. Wow. Which is surprisingly big yeah. for a Western uh, European country. So Saar found many of Karl Marx's denser texts difficult, later revealing that he, quote, didn't really understand them. Instead, he became familiar with the writings of Soviet leader Joseph Stalin, including Stalin's The History of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Stalin's approach to Marxism gave Saar a sense of purpose in life. Okay. Saar also read Mao's work, especially On New Democracy, which is a text outlining a Marxist-Leninist framework for carrying out a revolution in colonial and semi-colonial, semi-feudal societies. Perfect for Cambodia. Uh, I, that sounds sarcastic, but it's true, actually. It's like... Very perfect for Cambodia. Uh, alongside these Marxist texts, Saar read the anarchist Peter Kropotkin's book on the French Revolution of 1789 called The Great Revolution. From Kropotkin, he took the idea that an alliance between intellectuals and the peasantry was necessary for revolution, and that a revolution needed to be carried out to its final conclusion without compromise for it to succeed, and that egalitarianism was the basis of a communist society. So he was pro-peasants. Oh, he was super pro-peasants. Okay. Yeah, like 
it's a you'll see but yeah peasants were like his people weirdly enough considering he grew up very rich so before we go any farther, let's talk a little bit about Cambodia and what was going on there in the early 20th century. Please. I okay. don't know if we've ever uttered the word Cambodia on, on this, this podcast. podcast. Oh, shame on us. Um, France colonized a large part of Southeast Asia in the late 19th century, which was called French Indochina at the time. A grouping of the three Vietnamese regions of Tonkin, Annam, and Cochin, China with Cambodia was formed in 1887. Laos came under French control in 1893 and became part of Indochina in 1899. And finally, the least Chinese territory of uh, Guangzhou Win was added in 1898. So after the fall of France during World War II, the colony was administered by the Vichy government and was under Japanese occupation until March 1945, when the Japanese overthrew the colonial regime. So after the Japanese surrender, the Viet Minh, a communist organization led by Ho Chi Minh, declared the Vietnamese independent, but France subsequently took back control of French Indochina. Mm-hmm. An all-out independence war known as the First Indochina War broke out in late 1946 between French and the Viet Minh forces. So in order to, com- to create a political alternative to the Viet Minh, the state of Vietnam, led by former Emperor Bao Dai, was proclaimed in 1949 and on October 22nd and November 9th, 1953, the kingdom of Laos and the kingdom of Cambodia proclaimed their respective independence. So following the Geneva Accord of 1954, the French evacuated Vietnam and French Indochina came to an end. So then they became separate countries again. However, it wasn't just all peace and prosperity afterwards where everyone oh, was like, don't yay, say. our countries are back. Yeah. So the Vietnam War began in earnest in 1955, um, and although the head of the Cambodian state, who's known as King Norderam Sihanouk, adopted an official policy of neutrality in the Cold War, Sihanouk allowed the Vietnamese communists to use Cambodia as a sanctuary and a supply route for their arms and other aid to the armed forces fighting in South Vietnam. This policy was perceived as humiliating by many Cambodians. Oh. Uh, in December 1967, Washington Post journalist Stanley Carnow was told by Sihanouk that if the U.S. wanted to bomb the Vietnamese communist sanctuaries, he would not object unless Cambodians were killed, which is like impossible because huh. there are Cambodians all over Cambodia. Oh. <laughs> yeah, weirdly enough. So much like Spain with Franco and Vietnam during the war, Cambodia was split between two warring factions. This is this will sound super familiar to sure. people who've been listening to the Dictator December. The forces of the Communist Party of Kampuchea, which was known as the Khmer Rouge, supported by North Vietnam and the Viet Cong, so that's the communist end, mm-hmm. against the government forces of the Kingdom of Cambodia and after October 1970, the Khmer Republic, which had succeeded the kingdom, and both of these were supported by the United States and South Vietnam, which was also supported by the U.S. Yes. So, Saar arrived in Saigon in on January 13th, 1953, the same day on which Sihanouk disbanded the Democratic-controlled National Assembly and began ruling by decree and imprisoned Democratic members of parliament without trial. So amid the broader First Indochina War in neighboring French Indochina, Cambodia was in a state of civil war with civilian massacres and other atrocities being carried out by all sides. Okay. So Saar regarded the most promising resistance group to be the Khmer Viet Minh, a mixed Vietnamese and Cambodian guerrilla subgroup of the North Vietnam-based Viet Minh. So the Cambodians and the Vietnamese are are combining forces to fight against the the government okay. of Cambodia. So um, 
Saar believed that the Khmer Viet Minh's relationship to the Viet Minh and thus the international Marxist-Leninist movement made it the best group for the circle Marxists to support. And his recommendation was agreed by his other members in Paris. Okay. So from 1956 to 1963, Saar taught history, geography, and French literature at a private school while simultaneously plotting a revolution while he was in Saigon. Um, you know how teachers famously yeah. have so much time. Exactly. Um, he married his first wife in July 1956. Uh, he continued to oversee many of the Marxist-Leninists' underground communications, and Sihanouk cracked down on the Marxist-Leninist movement, whose membership had halved since the end of the Civil War. So links with the North Vietnamese Marxist-Leninists declined, something Saar later portrayed as a good thing. He and the other members increasingly regarded the Cambodians as being too subordinate to their Vietnamese counterparts. So to deal with this, Saar and his cohort drafted a program and statutes for a new Marxist-Leninist party that would be allied, although not subordinate, to the Vietnamese. Okay. So he didn't want to be under the, v- the, um, the Viet communist Minh. Viet Minh. Yeah. He-, he wanted them to like fight alongside each other for the same purpose. Um, so they established party cells, emphasizing the recruitment of small numbers of dedicated members and organized political seminars and safe houses. So at a 1959 conference, the movement's leadership established the Kampuchean Labor Party, and in 1962, Saar became his party secretary general. So he's now like in the upper echelons yeah. of this political party. So afraid he would be arrested, he fled Phnom Penh the following year to a base in the jungles of northern Cambodia and encamped briefly with a group of Viet Cong. This sounds familiar. Yeah, it's all super familiar. Um, so the Central Committee met again in January 1965 to denounce the peaceful transition to socialism being espoused by Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, accusing him of being a revisionist. So in contrast to Khrushchev's interpretation of Marxism-Leninism, Saar and his comrades sought to develop their own explicitly Cambodian variant of this ideology. <laughs> so their interpretation moved away from the or- orthodox Marxist focus on the urban proletariat as the forces a revolution needed to build socialism. Um, instead, they gave that role to the rural peasantry, who was a far larger class in s- Cambodian society. So they went with bringing marxist leninist like thought communist thought Mm -hmm. to the peasants because there were just way more of them okay and they thought they could get a lot more support so kind of have the power come from below and like a grassroots movement exactly exactly um so by 1965 the party regarded cambodia's small proletariat as being full of quote enemy agents and systematically Mm -hmm. refused them party membership so not only did he only go for peasants he was like no one above peasant can be part of the party except for me um and my guys So the party's main area of growth was in the rural provinces, and by 1965, membership was at 2,000 people. And in April 1965, Saar traveled by foot along the Ho Chi Minh Trail to Hanoi to meet North Vietnamese government figures, among them Ho Chi Minh and Le Duan. Uh, The North Vietnamese were preoccupied with the ongoing Vietnam War and thus did not want Saar's forces to destabilize Sihanouk's government since Sihanouk's anti-American stance rendered him basically a de facto ally. So in October 1966, Saar and the other Cambodian party leaders reached several key decisions. They decided to rename their organization the Communist Party of Kampuchea, or the CPK. Okay. A decision initially kept secret because they wanted that to be secret from the Vietnamese. Uh, Sihanouk began referring to its members as the Khmer Rouge, or the Red Cambodians. Okay. Although they did not adopt this term themselves. Okay. They also agreed to start secretly distancing themselves from the Viet uh, Minh, both politically and geographically. So 
Saar, who had begun to emerge as Cambodian party chief and the newly formed Khmer Rouge guerrilla army, launched a national uprising in 1968. He's like, we're taking this. It's time. It's time. <laughs> exactly. He. That was a, that that was was a horn. Doing a horn. That was you doing a horn. Of a horn of Gondor. It was very good. Horn of Gondor. Yes. Good job. Like, a bunch of people were like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I get it. Now I'm in this. <laughs> so the revolution started off slowly, um, though they were able to gain a foothold in the sparsely populated Northeast. Again, very rural. Mm-hmm. In 1970, Cambodia's Prince Nordam Sihanouk was overthrown while out of the country and replaced by General Lan Nal. A civil war then broke out in which Prince Sihanouk allied himself with the Khmer Rouge and Lan Nal received the backing of the United States. So Sihanouk was not like, not into the Khmer Rouge. Yeah. Uh, but he took a look at his circumstances and was like, I'm going to go with the guy who seems to have uh, a lot going on and is probably going to take over soon. Okay. Also, he was on vacation. And they, yeah. They he, he just like, left the country and then Lan Nal took over. I know it was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> So it was at this point that Saar began referring to himself as Pol, P-O-L. Okay. What's that mean? A name he later lengthened to Pol Pot. No one knows what it means. He never said what it means. It doesn't have a direct translation in Khmer. Whoa. Isn't that crazy? He just like picked a name. Also kind of dumb. Yeah, kind of dumb. being totally honest. I think he just kind of liked the sounds, Pol Pot, Pol Pot. Yeah, it's weird. Um, So also in 1970, just as an FYI, his wife began showing early signs of the chronic paranoid schizophrenia she would later be diagnosed with. I'm sure he did not. Happening with the people in charge. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm sure he did not help her with that in any way. So the North Vietnamese armies, in collaboration with the Viet Cong, invaded Cambodia to attack Lan Nol's forces. And in turn, the South Vietnamese in the United States sent troops to the country to bolster his government. Mm Mm-hmm. This pulled Cambodia into the Second Indochina War, a.k.a. the Vietnam War. Did you know that in Vietnam and in Southeast Asia, the Vietnam War is known as the American War? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, makes sense. So um, the Vietnam War was already raging across Vietnam. And U.S. President Richard Nixon also ordered a secret bombing campaign as part of the Vietnam War. Over the span of four years, U.S. planes dropped 500,000 tons of bombs on Cambodia, more than three times the amount dropped on Japan during World War II. Although targeting Viet Cong and the Khmer Rouge encampments, their bombing primarily affected civilians. You know what, though? That makes sense now that you say, now that you have told me that that the Viet Minh were hanging out or like hiding their stuff in Cambodia. Yes. Yes. So it's not like they were like, oops, turns out that part of the jungle wasn't Vietnam. It was more like, oh, this country is helping these guys. Yes, exactly. And we want to destroy their their supplies and their like encampments. Yes, exactly. Still, a lot of people died. Interesting. Um, So this, of course, fueled recruitment to the Khmer Rouge, which had an estimated 12,000 regular soldiers at the end of 1970 and four times that number two years later. So from 1972, the Khmer Rouge began trying to refashion all of Cambodia in the image of the poor peasantry, whose lives, which were rural, isolated, and self-sufficient, were regarded as worthy of emulation. Okay. So this idea of the hardworking rural peasant was like super hot for Pol Pot. Interesting. So from May that year, the group began ordering all of those living under its control to dress like poor peasants with black clothes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Like you're all dressing like you're 
poor. So black clothes, red and white karma scarves, or they look like kefia scarves, you know, like with that that kind of um, pattern. Okay. With like a fringe. And sandals made from car tires. Um, what? Pol Pot himself also dressed in this fashion. So everyone had like a uniform, basically, of dressing. The whole country? Well, all the people who were under the, the Khmer basically the peasants <laughs> but all the people who were like subscribing to the Khmer Whoa. Rouge and he had a lot of people I mean there were quite a few people who were like the Khmer Rouge is gonna save us all you know who else made people dress like who cults yes absolutely 100% cults and this was definitely a cult of personality so um CPK members members of his party were expected to attend regular sometimes daily lifestyle meetings in which they engaged in criticism and self-criticism it's just a lot of weird self-flagellation wow. things going on like, um, my nail beds are <laughs> yeah, garbage. Like, I mean, yeah, it's so gross. My pores are so big. Yeah, like mean girls. They're all mean <laughs> girls. It's just a country of mean girls. Um, these cultivated an atmosphere of perpetual vigilance and suspicion within the movement. So it had just the right amount of... So if you weren't, if you weren't saying enough bad stuff about yourself, people were suspicious of yes, you. Yes, exactly. If you weren't being appropriately critical of yourself then you probably were, th- that you were like, mm, what's that guy doing? Yeah, that's weird. <sighs> so um, either Pol Pot or one of his right-hand men led such sessions at their headquarters, although they were exempt from being criticized themselves. Okay. Yes. Naturally. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Um, so by early 1972, relations between the Khmer Rouge and its Vietnamese Marxist allies were becoming strained and some violent clashes between the two had broken out. So now it's starting to be, there's a little bit of a difference in ideology, enough mm-hmm. so, and it's also everyone's under a lot of stress because of the war. Um, they start to kind of separate a little bit mm-hmm. in terms of their ideologies, and so they're actually starting to fight. So that year, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong main force divisions began pulling out of Cambodia, primarily because they were needed for the offensive against Saigon. And as they became more dominant, the CPK imposed increasing numbers of controls over the Vietnamese troops active in Cambodia. So the Viet Cong are the North Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So uh, both the Khmer Rouge and Lan Nol's troops purportedly committed mass atrocities. At the same time, about 70,000 U.S. and South Vietnamese soldiers stormed across the Vietnam-Cambodian border to fight North Vietnamese and Viet Cong troops who had taken sanctuary in Cambodia. So by the time the U.S. bombing campaign ended in August 1973, the number of Khmer Rouge troops had increased exponentially, and they now controlled approximately three quarters of Cambodia's territory. And all of them dressed exactly the same. Wearing, wearing sandal, wearing flip-flops made from car tires. Yeah, just wandering around Cambodian, yeah, territory. So soon after the began, they began shelling Phnom Penh with rockets and artillery. And a final assault of the refugee-filled capital started in January 1975 with the Khmer Rouge bombarding the airport and blockading river crossings. A U.S. airlift of supplies failed to prevent thousands of children from starving. Finally, on April 17, 1975, the Khmer Rouge entered the city, winning the civil war and ending the fighting. About half a million Cambodians had died during the civil war. What? Yet, the worst was still to come. So, almost immediately after taking power, the Khmer Rouge evacuated Phnom Penh's 2.5 million residents. Like, immediately. Like, get out. Former civil servants, doctors, teachers, and other professionals were stripped of their possessions and forced to toil in the fields as part of a re-education process. He was not kidding when he said, everyone's going to be a peasant. Everybody. So those that complained about the work, concealed their rations, or broke rules were usually tortured in a detention center and then killed. 
during the Cambodian genocide, which is what it was called, the bones of millions of people who died from malnutrition, overwork, or inadequate health care also filled up the mass graves across the country. Thousands died in just the first few weeks of the Khmer Rouge's reign. Yes, it gets worse. So under Pol Pot, the state controlled all aspects of a person's life. Money, private property, jewelry, gambling, most reading material and religion were outlawed. Agriculture was collectivized. Children were taken from their homes and forced into the military and strict rules governing sexual relations, vocabulary and clothing were laid down. The Khmer Rouge, which renamed the country Democratic Kampuchea, even insisted on realigning rice fields in order to create the symmetrical checkerboard pictured on their coat of arms. Yeah. Until 1979, the Khmer Rouge executed those that they believed represented the old society. So this included intellectuals, merchants, Buddhist monks, former government officials, and former soldiers. And in addition, they targeted members of Cambodia's ethnic minorities. Half of the Chinese living in Cambodia at the time were killed, as were about 90,000 Muslims of the Cham culture. Vietnamese residents were either expelled or murdered. So at first, Pol Pot largely governed from behind the scenes, and he became prime minister in 1976 after Prince Nordrum was forced to resign. By that time, border skirmishes were occurring regularly between the Cambodians and the Vietnamese, and the fighting intensified in 1977. And in December 1978, the Vietnamese sent more than 60,000 troops, along with air and artillery units, across the border. So on January 7, 1979, the Vietnamese captured Phnom Penh and forced Pol Pot to flee back into the jungle where he resumed guerrilla operations. The Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot were in charge for four years. That's it. That's it? Four years. Four. So. And only like Vietnam realized what was going on? I mean, I think because uh, there was still like so much going on because of the Vietnam War and everything. They were a little distracted. A lot of people were super distracted by this. Yeah. So, uh, We'll talk about the Cambodian killing fields in, in a minute, but it's it was awful. So the People's Republic of China was the main international supporter of the Khmer Rouge. Uh, the Chinese provided financial and military support to the party even after its overthrow in 1979. And the UN also recognized the coalition government of De- Democratic Kampuchea, which included the Khmer Rouge instead of the People's Republic of Kampuchea. So even the UN was like, all right, crazy. <sighs> Um, so following the Vietnamese invasion of his country, Pol Pot withdrew to bases in Thailand to lead the Khmer Rouge forces against the new Hanoi-supported government in Phnom Penh, which refused to consider peace negotiations as long as he remained the head of the party. Like, they were like, you killed so many of your people, we are not talking to you. So Pol Pot lived in the Nam Malai area, giving interviews in the early 1980s and accusing all of those who opposed him of being traitors and, quote, puppets of the Vietnamese until he disappeared from public view. In 1985, his retirement was announced, but he retained his influence over the party, and a group interviewed during this period described Pol Pot's views on the death toll under his government as such. He said that he knows that many people in the country hate him and that and think that he's responsible for the killings. He said he knows many people died. When he said this, he nearly broke down and cried. He said he must accept responsibility because the line was too far to the left and because he didn't keep proper track of what was going on. He said he was like the master in a house. He didn't know what the kids were up to and he trusted people too much. These were the people to whom he felt very close and he trusted them completely. Then in the end, they made a mess of everything. They would tell him things that were not true, that everything was fine, that this person or that person was a traitor. In the end, they were the real traitors. The major problem had been the cadres formed by the Vietnamese. So he did not, he was like, he I trusted just, too much. I, my only just, problem is that I just love too much. Yeah, yes. He is 
a maniac. So the Khmer Rouge, this like tiny faction that's like trying to build up forces in the jungles, kept the government forces at bay until about 1996 when troops started deserting. They were like, we're never getting this back. <sighs> yeah. It's all over. Several important Khmer Rouge leaders Are also defected. Are still running around wearing and he's still flip-flops wearing, made of he's still car wearing tires. flip-flops made of tires? So the government followed a policy of making peace with Khmer Rouge individuals and groups after negotiations with the organization as a whole failed. So they were like, let's just try and get individual people to like defect. Um, and in 1995, Pol Pot experienced a stroke that paralyzed the left side of his body. Um, Pol Pot ordered the execution of his lifelong right-hand man, Son Sen, on June 10th, 1997, for attempting to make a settlement with the government. Eleven members of Son Sen's family were also killed, although Pol Pot later denied that he had ordered this. So 20 years after he's he's not in charge anymore, he's still having... He's still acting like... it tomorrow he's going to be back in charge like we're just going to get over this hump yep so then he then fled to his northern stronghold but was later arrested by Khmer Rouge military chief Tom Mock on June 19th 1997 Pol Pot had not been seen in public since 1980 two years after his overthrow at the hands of an invading Vietnamese army he was sentenced to death in absentia by a Nam Pen court soon afterwards how did they know it was him if they hadn't <laughs> seen him in 17 years. No, no. I think he still had enough people around him where they were like, yeah, that's, yeah, him. that's him. <laughs> Go get him. <laughs> Go get him. Um, in July of that year, he was subjected to a show trial for the death of Son Sen and sentenced to lifelong house arrest. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, on the night of April 15th, 1998, The Voice of America, which was a radio show, mm-hmm. uh, of which Pol Pot was a devoted listener, weirdly enough, announced that the Khmer Rouge had agreed to turn him over to an international tribunal. Okay. According to his wife, he died in his bed later that night while waiting to be moved to another location. Tom Mock claimed that his death was due to heart failure, later saying, quote, he was sitting in his chair waiting for the car to come, but he felt tired. His wife asked him to take a rest. He laid down on his bed. His wife heard a gasp of air. It was the sound of dying. When she touched him, he had already died. It was 1015 at night. Despite government requests to inspect the body, it was cremated at An Long Ven in the Khmer Rouge zone a few days later, raising suspicions that he had committed suicide by taking an overdose of the medication which he had been prescribed. Journalist Nate Thayer, who was present, held the view that Pol Pot killed himself when he became aware of Tomok's plan to hand him over to the U.S., claiming that, quote, Pol Pot died after ingesting a lethal dose of a combination of Valium and chloroquine. A little bit about Pol Pot as a person. He had a thirst for power. What? Really? Um, he was introspective, highly reclusive. Biographer Philip Short, who's the author of Pol Pot, colon, The History of a Nightmare, stated that he, quote, delighted in appearing to be what he was not, a nameless face in the crowd. During his political career, he used a wide array of pseudonyms. Poke, Hay, Pole, 87, Grand Uncle, Elder Brother, First Brother, and in later years, he used the pseudonyms 99 and Pem. Yeah. He told a secretary that, quote, the more often you change your name, the better. It confuses the enemy. In later life, he concealed and falsified many details of his life. And again, as I said before, he never explained why he took the name Pol Pot. So in closing, we're going to talk about the Cambodian killing fields. Mm -hmm. So the Cambodian killing fields are a number of sites in Cambodia where collectively more than a million people were killed and buried by the Khmer Rouge regime. The mass killings are widely regarded as part of a broad state-sponsored genocide. 
also known as the Cambodian Genocide. Analysis of 20,000 mass grave sites by the DC CAM mapping program and Yale University indicates that at least 1,386,734 victims of execution. Estimates of the total deaths resulting from Khmer Rouge policies, including death from disease and starvation, range from 1.7 to 2.5 million. Oh my God. Out of a 1975 population of roughly 8 million. In 1979, Vietnam invaded democratic Kampuchea and toppled the Khmer Rouge regime, viewed as ending the genocide. So the Cambodian journalist uh, Dith Pran coined the term killing fields after his escape from the regime. The Khmer Rouge regime arrested and eventually executed almost everyone suspected of connections with the former government or with foreign governments, as well as professionals and intellectuals, ethnic Vietnamese, ethnic Thai, ethnic Chinese, ethnic Cham, Cambodian Christians, and the Buddhist monkhood were the demographic targets of persecution. As a result, Pol Pot has been described as a genocidal tyrant. Martin Shaw, historian, described the Cambodian genocide as, quote, the purest genocide of the Cold War era. Historians suggest that between 1.17 and 3.42 million Cambodians were killed in four years. Four years. In, like, like our parents' lifetimes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In our parents' lifetimes. That would be like, for example, if since 2016, the entire population of Chicago was murdered. Yeah. So even, yeah. That's, it's. Out, it's out of control. Even the Khmer Rouge acknowledged that two million had been killed, though they attributed those deaths to a subsequent Vietnamese invasion. It was, it was because we trusted too many. We people. just trusted. It's just because I loved too much. That's it. That's why. Um, Cambodians. Uh, oh. By late 1979, UN and Red Cross officials were warning that another 2.25 million Cambodians faced death by starvation due to, quote, the near destruction of Cambodian society under the regime of ousted Prime Minister Pol Pot, who were saved by international aid after the Vietnamese invasion. So that... <laughs> So I guess the peasants yes. who were supposed to be like farming and keeping the country alive yeah. instead yep. were not doing that job. No, no. because uh, society had completely collapsed because he just murdered people left, right, and center and just stripped everyone who had more money than a peasant and just put them in re-education camps. It's out of... It's, absolutely out of control i had no idea no idea i mean and this was a tough but i mean this was a tough topic but this was a tough topic because it's so intertwined with like the vietnam war Mm -hmm. and you know um communism in the mid-century and all of these like different political factions warring and realigning and these people these people were just these poor people were just in the middle of all of it and like this is my, this is like the late 20th century. Yeah, this was 1975 like, to 1979. People had ways of communication yep. and mm-hmm. like journalists yep. were probably there. Yep. And yeah, it's out of control. I didn't realize he died so late. He died in 1998. You know what? All these freaking dictators like they live lived way for too like long. 90 years. Nobody ever took them out. It was no. all like... They had a heart attack and died in their yeah. sleep because they were 90 years old. Oh, my goodness. Well, I hope Pol Pot burns in hell. Oh. <laughs> Hundo P. Hundo P. Hundo P. Uh, it is the opinion that of, I would like to say, misinformation. Yeah, you know what? I'll let you speak for me. 
Of course. That we really hope that Pol Pot burns for eternity in the ninth circle of hell. Yeah. Where the worst wh- one. Yeah. Where the devil is like munch, munch, munching on his head for the rest of time. Yeah. Um, for more on that, you should listen to my episode. <laughs> burn, baby, burn. burn baby, Dante's burn. Inferno. Mm, Dante's Inferno. I don't remember I don't the have number. the number in no, front of me. Sorry. But you can find it, guys. So as a palate cleanser Ugh. of all that murder and death, um, my topic this evening is called Holiday in Cambodia, a quiz on vacation destinations. So for this quiz, I'm going to describe a vacation destination like I'm a, a commercial for okay. said vacation destination, and you have to name the place. Wonderful. And it might be a country or it might be a city, but it'll be represented in the question. <clears throat> Here we go. Question number one. This locale is one of the most popular travel destinations in the world, and with good reason, as this island, which is known as the Island of the Gods, is one of the most beautiful places on Earth, surrounded by azure seas and edged with golden beaches. Kuta Beach is a surfer's paradise, and if you're looking for a beach holiday, then there is no better place to find it than this gorgeous island set in the middle of Indonesia. Being just eight degrees south of the equator, any adventurous traveler will enjoy a temperate climate while walking the beautiful and ancient streets of Denpasar. Question number two. It's not cheap or easy to reach, but this isolated island nation between the Arabian and Lakadive seas is the personification of a dreamy tropical vacation. Here, thatched roof bungalows straddle crystal clear aquamarine waters, and beach trips and spa treatments are the only items on the agenda. If cabin fever sets in, pay a visit to the capital, Malé, or book a snorkeling or scuba diving excursion. Question number three. Famous museums, tulips, canal-lined streets, coffee shops, and high-end boutiques await you in this European city. Here you can spend your days gazing at Vincent van Gogh paintings, relaxing in Vandelpark, and shopping in the Nine Little Streets area. Immerse yourself in the culture by eating raw herring or pancakes. (laughs) If you plan your trip for the spring, don't miss the Kuchenhof Gardens where you can view millions of flowers. Question number four. Dotted with luxurious boutique hotels, this Caribbean destination is tailor-made for lovebirds and adrenaline junkies. Those in search of relaxation will find it on the island's unspoiled shorelines, specifically Redwood Beach and Anse Shastanet. Meanwhile, adventure seekers can test their limits climbing the pitons or ziplining through the Chassin region's rainforest. All eyes on you when you travel this island, where paradise couldn't get any closer than this. Question number five. Stunning Persian Gulf views heart-pumping activities and historic landmarks await you in this Middle Eastern city. This travel destination is filled with one-of-a-kind attractions, including the Burj Khalifa, the famous mall, and an indoor ski resort. But the city still holds on to its heritage, as seen in the Bastakia Quarter and the traditional gold and spice souks. When you need a break from the hustle and bustle of the city, head to the Jumeirah Beach's sandy shore. Question number six. 
miles of beaches, endless luxury accommodations, and a non-stop party atmosphere in this town have transformed this once sleepy village on the Yucatan coast into one of Mexico's most popular tourist attractions, particularly during spring break. But the city also sits close to lush jungles, tranquil cenotes, and an impressive network of caverns, making it an excellent option for nature lovers. Question number seven. This destination offers plenty of world-famous attractions, including the Duomo, Pizziale Michelangelo, and Piazza delle Signoria. After appreciating the historic Italian city's Renaissance architecture and art, sample some of the region's delectable Tuscan food and wine at its quaint cafes, gelato shops, and ristorantes. Then cross the Ponte Vecchio to get to the Boboli Gardens, where you'll find verdant gardens and panoramic views. Question number eight. There is only one word that really captures the essence of this Canadian destination. Multifaceted. This city represents the melding of the old and new worlds with 18th century structures blending into a 21st century skyline. Old-fashioned houses are now home to funky fusion restaurants, and the familiar sounds of English is juxtaposed against the rolled R's of French. Rainbow flags fly alongside cloth emblems from India, Portugal, and France, and traditional French pastries are sold alongside the distinctly sweet sesame seed bagel. Just when you thought you'd seen it all, a short elevator ride exposes you to another city located several stories below ground level. Question number nine. If sun-drenched days spent lazing on beaches and sailboats and long nights grooving to techno beats sound like your idea of vacation, then this destination is the place for you. Known for its collection of buzzy nightclubs clustered around its central town in Santa Antony, the third largest Balearic island located off the east coast of Spain is packed with revelers throughout most of its summertime peak season. Still, partying isn't this island's only pastime. Pine-clad hills conceal quaint villages, secluded coves hide family-friendly beaches, eateries tempt with traditional Balearic foods, and vendors hawk everything from leather goods to olive oils in the local markets. This vacation spot is everything you think it is, and so much more. And finally, question number 10. The real question here is what can't you do in this African capital? This is a city brimming with adventure, culture, and culinary arts. Start your day with a morning trip up Table Mountain. With clearer skies in the early hours, you'll be able to enjoy spectacular views of the city. From here, you can head to Boulders or Clifton Beach for some sun, sand, and surf, or you can experience the mother city's rich history. Robin Island and the District 6 Museum both do a fantastic job recounting the city's struggle to overcome apartheid, and Bo Cop and Green Market Square provide a fascinating glimpse into this town's African and Muslim traditions. Just make sure to dedicate some time to the city's wine culture, touring the vineyards at Constantia or sipping a chilled wine along the Victorian Alfred waterfronts are a must. We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with your answers.
sounded like who like the um the sunday morning like real estate tour of homes oh my god that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me um <laughs> uh, yeah that's this charming two-bedroom colonial <laughs> has beautiful views yes yeah check out the finished basement <laughs> what is the that called wood paneling parade of homes such charm that's what it's called parade of homes so this is parade of vacation destinations all right um, I will not read all of what I said, but I will hit the high points. Throw me some high points. All right. Okay. Question number one. This locale is one of the most popular travel destinations in the world. It's an island known as the Island of the Gods, one of the most beautiful places, surrounded by Azure Seas. Uh, Kuta Beach, Surfer's Paradise. Um, beach Holiday, gorgeous island set in the middle of Indonesia, eight degrees south of the equator, and uh, the capital is Denpasar. Is it Java? It is Bali. Oh. Close. Um, Bali is part of the Coral Triangle, the area with the highest biodiversity of marine species, especially for fish and turtles. Uh, in this area alone, over 500 reef-building coral species can be found. And for comparison, this is about seven times as many as in the at- entire Caribbean. Isn't that cool? Wow. All right, question number two. It's not cheap. It's an isolated island nation between the Arabian and Lakadiv seas. Um, there are thatched roof bungalows and uh the capital is male it's the maldives it is the maldives i only got that because you said the capital i had to do it because i was like (laughs) who knows anything about the maldives um so the maldives comprise a territory spanning roughly uh 298 square kilometers that's 115 square miles for the americans the maldives is one of the world's most geographically dispersed sovereign states as well as the smallest asian country by land area and population with around 515,696 inhabitants so there you go. Okay, question number three. Museums, tulips, canal line streets, coffee shops. Yeah, Amsterdam. Amsterdam, yes. Um, Amsterdam is in the province of North Holland. So if you're curious, the Netherlands is the whole country. Holland is a region divided into two provinces, which is North and South Holland. And Amsterdam is in Holland and is the capital of the Netherlands. The name Holland is also frequently used informally to refer to the whole of the country of the Netherlands. Um, This usage is commonly accepted in other countries and sometimes employed by the Dutch themselves. However, some in the Netherlands, particularly those from regions outside Holland, might find it undesirable or Mm -hmm. misrepresentative to use the term for the whole country. So just as an FYI. All right. Question number four. Luxurious boutique hotels. Caribbean destination. Uh, Redowit Beach in Anse Chastanet. Adventure seekers can test their limits climbing the pitons. Um, All eyes on you when you travel to this island where paradise couldn't get any closer than this. All eyes on you. Oh, St. Lucia. Yes. Thank Uh, you. You're welcome. Uh, (laughs) One of the windward islands, St. Lucia or St. Lucia was named after St. Lucy of Syracuse. It, uh, <laughs> yes, it is one of the two countries in the world named after a historical woman. 
So St. Lucia is named after St. Lucy, and Ireland is named after the Celtic goddess of fertility, Ire. I thought that was great. great. That's good. Good trivia right there. Okay. Question number five. Stunning Persian Gulf views, Burj Khalifa, famous mall, Bastakia Quarter. Dubai. Dubai. Uh, Dubai is a global city and the business hub of Western Asia. It is also a major global transport hub for passengers and cargo, as you know. (laughs) Oil revenue helped accelerate the development of the city, which was already a major mercantile hub. Today, less than 5% of the Emirates revenue comes from oil. (laughs) Everything else comes from tourism. A center for regional and international trade since the early 20th century, Dubai's economy relies on revenues from trade, tourism, aviation, real estate, and financial services. It's crazy. Wow. Wow. They're very rich. And they like are. the city is air conditioned outside. Yeah. <laughs> like they just, there's, they have so much money they get air conditioned the outside, which is the thing that your mother would yell at you for leaving the door open in the summer. Question number six, miles of beaches, endless luxury accommodations, a sleepy village on the Yucatan coast, Mexico's most popular tourist attractions, particularly during spring break. Cancun? It is Cancun. Um, the name Cancun, or Cancum, with an M, first appears on 18th century maps. The meaning of Cancun is unknown, and it is also unknown whether the name is of Maya origin. Ah. If it is of Maya origin, possible translations include place, quote, place slash seat slash throne of the snake, or enchanted snake. Um, snake iconography was prevalent in the pre-Columbian site of Nizuk. Hmm. Question number seven. Um, uh, world famous attractions including the Duomo, Piazzelle, Michelangelo, Piazzella del Signore, uh, historic Italian cities, Renaissance architecture and art, delectable Tuscan food, Ponte Vecchio, Boboli Gardens. Boboli Gardens is what really got me. Was it, is it the Boboli? Uh, just because I don't know why I think of that pizza crust. Oh yeah, Boboli pizza crust. We would beg my mother to buy us Boboli pizza crust because of the commercials. The the pizza crust looked so delectable. I was like, my life will change as soon as I eat the Bobolis pizza so I'm crust. So just picturing like, like them growing on trees. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Bobolis garden. You just snatch it down. Uh, is that in Florence? It is Florence. <laughs> Uh, Florence is considered by many academics the birthplace of the Renaissance and has been called, quote, the Athens of the Middle Ages. Its turbulent political history includes periods of rule by the powerful Medici family and numerous religious and Republican revolutions. From 1865 to 1871, the city served as the capital of the Kingdom of Italy. Ah. The Florentine dialect forms the base of standard Italian, and it became the language of culture throughout Italy due to the prestige of the masterpieces by Dante Alighieri. Petrarch, Giovanni Boccaccio, Niccolo Machiavelli, and others. Question number eight. <laughs> what? What? The gardens, the bubbly. The bubbly gardens. I, had, I have to say gardens in an Italian accent, too, I guess. Okay. Question number eight. Multifaceted Canadian destination. Melding of the old and new worlds. 18th century structures. Old-fashioned houses. Rolled R's of French along with English. Uh, Montreal. Montreal. Montreal has hosted multiple international conferences and events, including, as we have mentioned before, the 1967 International and Universal Exposition and the 1976 Summer Olympics. It is the only Canadian city to have held the Quadrennial Summer Olympics. Yes. As of 2016, the city hosts the Canadian Grand Prix of Formula One, the Montreal International Jazz Festival, and the Just for Laughs Festival. So head on up there if you're interested in any of those. 
Question number nine, sun-drenched days, lazing on beaches and sailboats, long nights grooving to techno beats, uh, central town in St. Anthony, third largest Belaraic island located off the east coast of Spain. Ibiza. Ibiza. I was waiting for that one to show up. <laughs> Ibiza is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, in popular music, American singer-songwriter Mike Posner released a song called I Took a Pill in Ibiza. Ibiza in April 2015. Did you know that the clean version of that is I took a plane to Ibiza? <laughs> I hate that. It's so dumb. <laughs> it's so dumb. All right. The Balearic Islands are mm-hmm. Majorca, Minorca, and Ibiza. Ibiza. Good to know. Finally, question number 10. African capital, city brimming with adventure. Uh, Table Mountain, Boulders or Clifton Beach. Um Overcoming Apartheid. It's called the Mother City. District 6 Museum. Is it Johannesburg or Pretoria or Blomfontein? <laughs> is it somewhere in South Africa? Yeah. Is it in South Africa? It is in South Africa. It's, uh, uh, do you say? Is it not one that I just mentioned? It's not one of the ones you just Wow. Said. Then what? It's Cape Town. Oh. Yeah. Cape Town is the legislative capital of South Africa. With they Pre- have three capitals. They have three capitals, with Pretoria being the executive capital and Bloemfontein being the judicial. It is one of the most multicultural cities in the world, reflecting its role as a major destination for immigrants and expatriates to South Africa. In 2014, Cape Town was named the best place in the world to visit by both the New York Times and the Daily Telegraph. Really? I mean, they the got best great- place to visit in the world. In the world. In the world. So we gotta go. <laughs> Apparently, they got great wine. So we gotta go. I mean, you've had South African wine. It's pretty good. I think they're Chenin Blanc. Oh, sure. Chenin Blanc. Yes, yeah, so crisp. Um, <laughs> see, and you forgot completely about Pol Pot during that entire thing. I know I did. No, never. Wow. I'm afraid that you're gonna leave me and start your own travel, travel agencies. Probably Very not. lucrative. Yeah, super lucrative. Um, so uh, thanks for sticking with us with Dictator December, you guys. I know this was a rough one. Just one more. Just one more to go. And uh, and then, oh, we have some, I will say we have some some great surprises coming some for you. Some wonderful treats for the new year. Yeah, we're very excited about this. Um, it's been in the, uh, it's been in the works for a little while. Uh-huh. We've been talking about it. And just tonight, we got a, a we just decided a on a brand new, new idea. Yep, a new segment, a new for segment us. idea. Very exciting. Um, so um, we do have some listener submitted trivia. We should probably sing the song. Listener submitted trivia. Ooh, that was good. That was jazzy. You put some spank on. Ba 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 Put some do some ski skating. Ba ba boop. Um, so this was, um, this is from, uh, Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was from our Franco episode. Um, one of our listeners, uh, Steph Warsh, uh, tweeted at us after the Franco episode and said, so excited. I studied abroad in Madrid and there are traces of him everywhere. I had a professor named Itziar who said her family had to get special approval from the government to name her, uh, because it's not a biblical name. So clearly controlling everything, controlling everything, even what you name your babies. So uh, a little bit of firsthand knowledge. Thank you very much, Steph. Thank you. Um, And uh, if you want to tell people about this podcast, we'd sure be uh, happy to hear it. Um, (laughs) You can find us uh, basically wherever you get your podcasts. We're just about everywhere. And please rate, review, and subscribe. Tell a friend. Tell a friend. 
Um, and we we have a PayPal link on our Twitter page. It's at MissInfoPod. And then also our website, www.missinfopod.com. If you're so inclined, you yeah. feel like tossing a few bucks our way. Yep, just we for overhead. We greatly appreciate it. You become mm-hmm. one of our gold star listeners. Be your name permanently emblazoned on our website. Yes. Um, yeah, anything. Anything is great. It helps us with uh, to keep the podcast up and running and our hosting fees and... And all that fun stuff. Yeah. Bringing you a crisp, intellectual, free, funny show every Tuesday. And that's our guarantee. Sometimes about dictators. Sometimes not. <laughs> Roll that dice. More often than not, it's More not often about not, dictators. Yeah. 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 More often than not, it's just like fun, flirty... Flirty. <laughs> forget I said that. 30 flirting thriving. <laughs> 30 flirting and thriving. Um, so thanks so much for listening, guys. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye.